maybe 30 or 20 years ago, a Saudi might have said, I'm Muslim and I'm Arab and I'm Saudi. Now they might say, I'm Saudi and I'm Arab and I'm Muslim. You know, they're trying to radically refashion their country and they need help from the best experts in the world. Do you want to have your country's people be disqualified from that because of some essentially antiquated point of view about how countries work together? In recent months, it can feel like Saudi Arabia is intent on buying the world. It's bought up much of golf, sports teams, many of the globe's best soccer players to its own domestic league, and it owns huge chunks of many of the biggest companies on the planet. But Saudi Arabia is not just on a shopping spree. The once insular, oil-rich kingdom is transforming into a major diplomatic and military player, a pivotal actor in the energy transition, and looks set to host high-end cultural events like the FIFA World Cup. You know, they know that buying a football club immediately brings you a billboard into a global game that allows you to completely reposition yourself and rebrand yourself. It feels like we're entering the era of the Saudi project. But what exactly is the kingdom trying to achieve, and will it succeed? Coming soon from Intelligence Squared, the Saudi project is a new podcast series seeking to answer some of these questions and more. Britain does have choices. It's not either or situation. We either indulge Mohammed bin Salman or boycott Mohammed bin Salman. There is a third choice. Search The Saudi Project wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. Thank you both very much. And now time to start. Welcome to the Royal Geographical Society and tonight's latest Intelligence Squared debate on democracy in India. India is hailed as the world's biggest democracy and, and I think it was you, Patrick, Uh, who made the point that every second person in the world living in a democracy is actually living in India, which is quite an astonishing thought. But the question is, what does Indian democracy mean? Is it the glue that holds India together and allows it to flourish and drives its creativity and vitality? Or is it a curse that's encouraged corruption and social division and perpetuated poverty? Is it India's Achilles heel? And that, of course, is the motion tonight. Democracy is India's Achilles heel. And I'm going to invite our four debaters to the podium for opening speeches. Our first speaker for the motion is Suhail Seth, uh, who is managing partner of Consulage India, a strategic brand management and marketing consultancy. But he's also much more than that. He's well known as a writer and an actor and a very accomplished debater, as he's been telling us. He's got a couple of thousand debates under his belt already. So here's another one. Trust the BBC to relay the truth before fiction. Thank you, Bridget. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. It is not our contention to decry democracy, as both these gentlemen will have you believe as we go through the evening. 
We're not saying that democracy is bad, that as a form of governance, it should be done away with. Neither are we suggesting for a moment that we, wise men, have an option for India. Our analysis pertains to the period post-1947, in which many of you left us with trials and tribulations, a period where we've seen the many facets of democracy, some of which have worked, some of which haven't. It's a weakness much like what happened to, or what happened with Achilles' uh, mother when she dipped him into the stacks, hoping that both his heels would be armed with vigor and encouragement and later figured that she'd only dunked one, not the other. The reality is, Mani Shankarayar, who I admire and is a very dear friend of mine, lost the general elections in 2009. He's now a member of India's parliament. If that isn't a paradox, what is? We're the only country in the world which can actually predict future prime ministers. So I can tell you there will be another Gandhi that will rise over the horizon with great adroitness. So there are these realities of, of India which we must come to terms with. Is it bad to have a Gandhi in power? I don't imagine so because look at the kind of options we've had in the past. So the reality is these are some of the issues that are hampering India's growth today and often enough, democracy is used as that crutch. The tragedy is that is there an alternate form of government? No. But like Achilles, we recognize that democracy is a weakness. We also realize that it's a weakness which can be strengthened. And I'm not here to talk about all the wrongs alone, but I think we need electoral reforms within the domain of democracy. And those electoral reforms need to happen. You can't have tugs and crooks and absolute scoundrels in parliament. You've got to have decent people, but then they get up and lose elections. So where are we left with and who are we left with? The tragedy also is that if you analyze India's parliament today, 37% are the three Bs. Well, in Hindi, they're called Behen, Bivi, and Bahu, which basically means she's either your sister or your wife or your daughter-in-law. Now, is that a bad thing? Often the argument is, but look, what the hell? She got elected in an election. So it really doesn't matter if I'm perpetrating a dynasty. It's not that. It's the dynasty and the use of dynastic politics, as it were, that you use to justify all the wrongs that are happening. So what are we essentially saying for the motion? We're saying that in today's India, whether it is the leadership or whether it is people in industry, they have manipulated the existing form of government, which they've called democracy. So they've said, because the people have elected us, we can do what the hell we want. And they've been doing it with great aplomb. Our contention is that that needs to be tempered. So we don't need another form of government, but what we certainly do need are cost corrections within this particular form, because this form in its present condition is dragging the country down. So I'd end by saying that we need to do three or four things urgently. One is we need to stop making excuses for misgovernance and bad governance and blame it on democracy, and which is what we've been doing. The current architecture of India's democracy is inherently weak because it allows a five-year period to people with no cause for either recall or for abstinence or for none of the above in your election program. The third, 
I genuinely believe that democracy is relevant only if democracy actually provides equal opportunities. Enough has been written and said about the denial of equal opportunities. Basic human rights, such as the right to education, for which we've only recently had a bill introduced, such as the right to health. So those rights need to be installed. I mean, you can't have an overarching form of government called democracy and deny people these very basic human rights. Four, I think it's important for us to recognize that there is an inherent weakness in the kind of democracy we practice. And that weakness needs to either be eliminated or course corrected. Finally, we're not here promoting a, a pre, you know, a Gaddafi kind of governance model or for that matter, a dictatorial form of government. We're saying that in the current context of democracy as it is in India, it is an inherent weakness for every Indian as a whole. It's not about certain classes developing while the others languish in poverty or because of the denial of opportunity. Thank you so much. Okay, so very quickly, William and Mani, you've got a chance to quiz Suhel on what he's just said. So what you're saying is that uh, democracy is a bad form of government, but you don't think that there's an alternative, better form of government. And are you suggesting that good governance could come through dictatorship when it cannot come through democracy? Are you on your side or are you on my side? See, this is what I'd expected of money to, to, to do wordplay, you know. But we're not here in a school debate. So let's get back to the seriousness of the topic. What I said was that democracy in its current form in India has certain flaws. Those flaws need to be ironed out within the domain of democracy. To quote myself ad verbatim, just so that you realize what I was saying, I said those course corrections need to happen within the domain of democracy. We are not suggesting money for any reason whatsoever that we either want you as the potentate or one of your ilk as a person who then drives the destiny of 1.2 billion people hurtling us towards very, very interesting disasters. But on the other hand, but on the other hand, Achilles couldn't... But on the other hand, Achilles couldn't get his heel corrected. But that was so because of his mother. Describe, how do you describe our democracy as Achilles' heel? Correct. He was born with that defect. Uh, and um, I don't think our democracy is incapable of being reformed. It's being reformed all the time. Okay, okay. William, you're going to have your chance to put your barbs from the podium because you're the next speaker. Thank Our you. First, thank you very much. <laughs> because our first speaker against the motion is William Darrymple, travel writer and historian, much award-winning, who's lived in Delhi for 25 years. His latest book, Nine Lives in Search of the Sacred in Modern India. So, William. So Hale has been very much trying to have his cake and eat it, to, to talk as if he's on our side while uh, avoiding the obvious, uh, mo uh, the obvious uh, uh, purport of the motion that if you don't have democracy, what do you have? You have a, the only option other than a democracy is a tyranny. 
This year, as we've seen, all over the world, people have been fighting and dying and being tortured and uh, being gunned down in Tahrir Square, protesting in Burma to fight for democracy. To have democracy and to picket it, to have the luxury of saying that this great form of governance, which has preserved you from the horrors which have encompassed almost all your neighbours, whether we're talking about... Just go, just go round your neighbours to see the other options on offer. Look at Pakistan. Pakistan without democracy. Pakistan is interesting because it's somewhere that has both had democracy of a form and which has rejected it. But would you prefer instead the efficient rule of General Zia with his public floggings? Would you like the rule of Musharraf with his jihadi nurseries? Or perhaps we might go to uh, Burma for uh, an example of uh, uh, the, the alternatives uh, to democracy. Burma, an interesting example, because again, linked under the Raj, a kind of adjunct to uh, British India, and yet if you look at what's happened since 1962, since the military coup in Burma, unbelievable horrors, forced labour, human trafficking, child labour, um, massive kidnapping of women as sex slaves for the military. All things which, for all the flaws, all the little um, things which have damaged democracy in India, have nonetheless not even begun to happen there. Look at Sri Lanka. Since 1956, under Mrs. the Tamils were, uh, were oppressed, where democracy is subverted, where the minority uh, is oppressed by the majority in a subverted form of democracy, you end up with insurgencies. Look what's happened to the uh, Sri Lankan Tamils, the, uh, culminating in the horrors of the camps two years ago. People lined up against the barbed massacres, mass rapes. Look at Nepal. There again, the, uh, the, the, uh, thanks to huge effort, thanks to mass protests, people finally get rid of the, uh, uh, of the monarchy, uh, but only at huge cost to themselves. I think there's no better argument for the essential value of democracy in India than to look within India at the places where democracy has been subverted and to see what's happened. During the uh, 1970s, under Mrs. Gandhi, a whole variety of democratically elected state governments were sacked. And the result was an incredible spread of insurgencies across the country. Almost all the major insurgencies, with the single exception of the Nagas, date back to the time when uh, Mrs. Gandhi was subverting democratically elected state governments. The bottom line is that it is completely impossible to rule as diverse a country as India, a multi-ethnic, multilingual country, except by consensus. India's remained intact as a country because it's a democracy, and it's remained a democracy because it's so diverse. Many in India look at China, at its 10 or 11% growth, at its uh, 
at the smoothness of Chinese growth and look lovingly at it and compare that to India and say, ah, but for these crooked politicians, but for our terrible democratic government, we could be like the Chinese. We could have 11% rule. But, of course, the much closer approximation to what India would be like if it was not democratic is Pakistan. No one uh, would hold up that model of libertarianism uh, as an alternative that we'd really like to follow. China also is the great exception among autocracies. Most nations that do not have democracies, the vast mass of Africa and Arabia, lag behind the democratic world in education, wealth creation, literacy. I agree with Sahil that there's no doubt that Indian democracy is an eccentric thing. In the last election, 33 of the Bihar State Assembly MPs had criminal records. Uh, the Dullah Chand Yadav, who's a very splendid character, uh, who has 100 cases of robbery against him and 50 murder cases pending, can also be addressed as the honourable member for Bar. So India is not a democracy uh, like other democracies. It is very flawed. But there is no alternative for a country like India with this long tradition of argumentativeness, with a tradition of uh, diversity, multi-ethnic, multilingual. It can't keep, be compared to China with its single Han mass, its one language, its one, uh, uh, its one script. There are, of course, many minorities, the Uyghurs and the Tibetans, uh, if you count them as within China in any legal sense. Uh, but the Han Chinese dominate to such an extent, you can't use it as a model. Even in early centuries BCs, when the um, first Buddhist monks came to convert the Chinese uh, from India to Buddhism, the Chinese took huge exception to the fact that the Indians were always arguing uh, and were encouraging dissension with the government. Even that long ago, the Chinese put a huge premium on obedience to authority. India is not like that. India is a country where everyone has an opinion. Everyone wants to have their view. Every single uh, regional area wants representation. Everyone wants to be part, have their views heard. If any system other than democracy were used, it would be chaotic. The reality is that India... That democracy is not India's Achilles heel, it is India's proudest boast, and rightly so. It's the largest democracy in the world and an extremely successful one for all its eccentricities and flaws. India massively rejected autocracy during the emergency, and in 1977 threw out Mrs. Gandhi and demanded an alternative. You should not let these two persuade you that they were in any way wrong to do so. Thank you, William. Well, a couple of minutes to my colleagues on my right. The topic of this debate is democracy is India's Achilles heel. We're not, we haven't been invited here to suggest an alternate form of government. So let me demolish some of the things you've said. Number one, you've said India's full or largely full of corrupt politicians. You mentioned Indira Gandhi, who was an autocrat. So she installed the emergency in 1975, got thrown out in 1977, and hey, what? Because we have a great democracy. She was re-elected in 1980, and it was a victory for democracy. Please applaud. 
Then we have Narendra Modi, the chief minister who presided over the massacre of many Muslims in Gujarat. Who you recently spoke up in your Facebook no, page, Sahail, as a great hero. No, no, hear me and you said Narendra no, no. Modi for Prime Minister of India. No, two weeks I didn't ago, say that. I remember. This is the problem with <laughs> history writers who attempt to tell the truth. <laughs> my question, my question to you is would you want the average man, not the man who lives in a farmhouse? Uh, on a foreign correspondent or an acclaimed author's salary, would you actually believe, do you actually believe the common man gets the benefits of democracy as they should be delivered? And if not, then the system is flawed and it is an inherently weak system which needs to be corrected. Okay, let's, let's, let's give William a chance to answer. Neither Mani nor I are arguing that India's democracy is unflawed. Patently, it is flawed. Patently, there are many things going wrong. But the thing to do is not to say that democracy is at fault. It is to try and improve the democracy. Thank you. Thank you, William Darampo. Well, you've had two speakers to persuade you, for and against. Let's hear from our... Second speaker for the motion that democracy is India's Achilles heel. Patrick French is another award-winning writer and historian. His most recent book is India, a Portrait, an intimate portrait of 1.2 billion people, he says. Patrick. Thank you. <clears throat> Let me tell you a story. At the last general election, I found myself in uh, Kanpur, which to some people here will still be known as Kornpur. And I wanted to see Mukta Ansari, who was a senior aspiring politician. And the place that I had to go and meet him was in Kanpur District Jail. And inside the jail, he'd managed to build himself a basketball court, and he had Harrod's soap in the bathroom. Now, the criminalization of elements of Indian democracy, a problem that has gotten much worse in the last 10 or 20 years is not something we can ignore. Fortunately, William even referred to this earlier when he was speaking, but let me give a few more examples of the kind of MPs that are ruling India today in the name of democracy. People who are charged with three cases of murder, 10 cases of attempted murder, house trespass causing hurt and mischief. You might say that every MP is probably guilty of mischief. Kidnapping with intent to murder, attempt to murder, wrongful confinement, causing hurt by means of poison, decoity with intent to cause death, and so on. This is not something that is incidental. This is to do with the fact that in large parts of central and northern India, if you are a crime boss, you need representation in the state assembly with the MLAs, and you need it in the centre in the Lok Sabha uh, with the MPs. And you make every effort to take over democracy, and that is what has happened to a large extent. There's a different but associated problem, which is extreme corruption. Many of you will have seen the photographs of the Chief Minister of Uttar Pradesh, Mayawati, being garlanded with 1,000 rupee notes, which are kind of so enormous, it's like a giant anaconda of banknotes is being put around her. You will have heard of figures like Jagan Reddy in Andhra Pradesh, whose father died a year or two ago, and who amazingly, in the short time that his father was running that state, managed to go from 
let's not say zero, but to a situation now where he has an annual income of £65 million, where he was discovered by the CBI only a few months ago, living in a 75-room palace which he had just built for himself. Now, this problem of corruption is not something that is only comical for the people at the top of the pile. It also extends right down to the roots of Indian society. We had only a few days ago a truck driver in UP, in Uttar Pradesh, being shot by the police after he failed to produce a 5,000 rupee bribe. And there's a further third association. There's criminalization, there's corruption, and crucially, there is nepotism. If you, do, if you plot a graph between heredity and age, and you look at MPs over the age of 80, you'll find that 0%, none of them, got there because their mummy or their daddy was the previous MP in that seat. But if you look at MPs under the age of 30, 100% of them are there, not because of their personal ability or talent, but purely because of who their parents are. And there is a direct straight line correlating between these two things. This is a problem which has become much worse since the 2004 and 2009 elections. If you look at the Congress party, Mani's party, you will find that of MPs under the age of 40, 9 out of 10 are the sons and daughters of eminent politicians. You have effectively had a suborning and a corrupting of the process of democracy in India. Now, we're not arguing on our side of the house that democracy in itself is a flawed way of governing a country. It is the best way of governing a country. What we are arguing is that democracy as it is practiced in India today is a potentially fatal weakness. It is an Achilles heel. If you are outside certain charmed circles in each Indian state, democracy brings you very few practical benefits. And what I believe needs to happen now is that you need to have accountable government, something that is plainly lacking in large parts of the country. You need to have the rule of law, which is clearly lacking in places where the police can simply shoot somebody and get away with it. And above all, you need to have a functioning state. And that ideally what you want is to go back not to systems of autocracy, of the variety of of the different kinds that you had before 1947, but instead to go back to the founding figures of independent India. If you read the Constitutional Assembly debates of the late 1940s, they are deeply inspirational documents. If you read the Indian Constitution which was promulgated in 1950, it is an incredible, inspiring document. And if you look at the vision, the idea that is contained in those documents and in the speeches of people like Pandit Nehru or Dr. B.R. Ambedkar or uh, Rajendra Prasad or the other people who are taking that part in that process. And let's remember that in that constituent assembly in the late 1940s, there were people who, for example, had been laboring on a dam project They weren't the sons and the daughters, the super-rich sons and the daughters of earlier generations of politicians. They were people who had got there on individual talent and merit. So I believe what needs to happen now is to return to that inspiring vision of the founding mothers and fathers of the Indian nation, which gave rise to democracy in 1947, and to sweep away the corrupt damaged form of democracy that has spread in the course of the last 10 or 20 years. So what I'm calling for, what we are calling for, is a recognition 
that democracy as it is practiced in India today is a potentially fatal weakness, an Achilles heel. Okay, uh, William and Mani, your chance to grill Patrick. I still think you're trying to have your cake and eat it here. You can't say that democracy is a fatal weakness and it's also the most inspiring thing about India. The reality is that if you're in Pakistan uh, at the time of Musharraf, if you're Aung San Suu Kyi sitting in, in Rangoon uh, struggling uh, to keep a party alive in a, in a tyranny... Uh, in one of the most brutal tyrannies, you do indeed look to India as inspiration. For all its flaws, India is still a beacon to the entire region. I was in Nepal, uh, you sadly couldn't make it. Um, but uh, the, the Nepalis look to India in every way as a beacon. For all the corruption, for all the flaws, India is a beacon to the entire region. Sri Lanka, Nepal, the whole of the Sark region look to India. It, and it is because of the democracy. Well, I'm interested to hear that Pakistanis look at uh, India in that very optimistic way that you're They're suggesting. deeply envious for all the, for all the competitiveness. Any Pakistanis uh, in the audience? <laughs> um, well, uh, maybe some of them are looking across in the, in the way that you're suggesting. I think really that what you're suggesting is that democracy is some kind of vague, what-if, theoretical abstract concept, something that's purely uh, existing on paper or in people's heads. The issue is democracy as it is practiced. There are all sorts of dictatorships that have pretended they are democracies. There are all sorts of uh, martial law administrators in neighboring countries who said that they are being uh, democratic by, for example, choosing a thousand people and saying these thousand people will then decide what policy is going to be. Uh, you even have elections or had elections in the Soviet Union which supposedly were democratic. The issue is not the abstract concept. It is how is democracy practiced. And I believe that democracy has gone wrong in India in the last 10 or 20 years. And the evidence for that is the growth of criminalization, the growth, the growth of corruption, but most of all, this takeover by nepotistic dynastic politicians. I mean, if you imagine in this room today, imagine if... Uh, all of the people in the whole hall, bar you know, maybe two dozen on that side, had got there effectively by inheritance rather than by being chosen through internal party democracy. That's the problem with the way things are working now. Money. Uh, I'm Money going to time. refute him, so I think I won't ask him any questions. <laughs> I'm going to okay. demolish him when my turn comes. <laughs> Bring on the demolition. Thank you, Patrick. Last but by no means least, our second speaker against the motion is Mani Shankar IR. Because how could you possibly have this debate without an Indian politician taking part? Former Indian diplomat, minister, and member of the Indian National Congress, as well as a very distinguished political columnist, Mani, your chance to speak. Uh, thank you very much. Mr. French is, of course, not French. And even so, his argument is not sincere. For he, for he, for he arrives here and tells us that uh, 
the Indian democracy is a fatal weakness of the structure of that state. He tells us that it is a non-functional state. Or might I remind him that at page 105 of his latest book, India, he describes Indian democracy as, quote, a self-balancing ecosystem. <laughs> if I go back one book, and at the moment it's he wrote a book called Tibet, Tibet, in which he says, Tibet is ruled not by terror, but by the absence of freedom. The one, thing, the one thing that you don't lack in India is freedom. Then his first book, he says he's inspired. In fact, I think he's named because of that after Patrick Henry. He's inspired by the slogan, give me liberty or give me death. And then he fetches up before you and says he'd rather have death than to have liberty. I think we should put this kind of hypocrisy in its uh, proper perspective. And to do so, I will draw from my own life. When I was in the Indian Foreign Service, I served for one year under the dictatorship of Ho Chi Minh. I then had two years under the dictatorship of Saddam Hussein. And finally, I had three years under the dictatorship of Ziaul Haq. It's made me a Democrat for life. <laughs> uh, we are given to understand that uh, human development in India has not improved. That was Suhail's point. Of course it hasn't improved because we don't have enough democracy, not because we have too much democracy. We have taken democracy in India out from simply parliament and the state assemblies and taken it right down to the grassroots, where in India today, we have 300,000 institutions of local self-government, to which we have elected 3.2 million representatives, of whom 1.8 million are women, 86,000 of whom hold office in these local bodies. This is empowerment participation on a scale that is without precedent in history and without parallel in the world. And yet, Suhail and Patrick can only look at, uh, at those rather, at the pulchritude that we get in our headlines, which tell us that there's nothing but corruption in our democracy. I think what we need to understand is that democracy is only a necessary condition of good governance. It is not a sufficient condition. But if you don't have democracy, you can't have good governance. For all examples we have of non-democratic countries are countries in which corruption, as in a democracy, is often much larger. Nepotism, as in a democracy, is much more acute. And undesirables being in power, I can't think of anybody more undesirable than Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin. It's added to oppression, to discrimination, and inescapability. Let me begin and look at this in the perspective of a politician, one who has to stand for elections. It's the most risk-prone job that we have in India. There's a word which exists in the, in the English language but which is rarely to be seen in the times of London, 
and is to be seen all the time in the Indian newspapers. It's anti-incumbency. The punishment that is accorded to politicians is for two-thirds of all MPs to be defeated at the subsequent election. There is no doubt at all that punishment is meted out by the people to its rulers in our country. And that therefore, if you are not very, very careful, the chances are that if you dissatisfy those who've elected you, they're going to have the great joy of kicking you out once again. And it is this that keeps what Patrick in his wiser moments described as the self-balancing ecosystem of our society. <laughs> he has put all his emphasis, he's put all his emphasis on criminalization in Indian politics. But where did he meet the criminal? By his own confession, in jail. If criminals are not being chased into jail, how did he meet Mukhtar Ansari in jail? And yes, there are these people who've got charges against them. Many of them are very controversial persons against whom their opponents seek to file false cases. We have many, many people in our politics who are charged with crime from of a very minor nature to a very, very, very serious nature. And yet, does their being in parliament or does their being in the assembly stop them from being taken into courts? Stop them from being put into jail? As of this minute, we've got half a dozen of the most prominent politicians on India, in India, people on whom the government depends, who are sitting in the Tihar jail, charged with serious crimes. And they're not able to come out because our courts in this self-balancing ecosystem <laughs> ensures that even if the people have made the mistake of electing a wrong man to parliament, the courts are there to ensure that he should go where he deserves to go, which is, which is the jail. Um, I think we ought to also recognize that... Uh, He's a parliamentarian from India. They I, think, so, I, think, I think... Okay, Mani. I think we Can't also need to recognize that it is only in a democracy that politicians are denigrated. It's only in dictatorships that you have the kind of adulation that people like Hitler and Stalin received. So I'm delighted that Suhel Seth is able to get up and make abusive remarks about me in London because he'll survive when he gets back to Delhi. Had he been a Chinese, then we would have loved to see him swinging slowly, slowly in the wind. <laughs> so, Hill and, and Patrick, your chance to come back. Okay. You know, it, the events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. 
That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Money always reminds you of college day debating standards. Lace your speech with humor, forget the facts. Two quick questions, money. Hand on your heart. I don't know when you last put it there. Do you genuinely believe, do you genuinely believe Indira Gandhi's return to power and Narendra Modi's constant electoral victories, are they not in your mind a mockery of a, of a form of democracy, especially to the people who've died? 1984, we had the Sikh riots. We then had the program in, 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 in Gujarat. And your Quick comments. Question? I'm going to put my hand exactly in the place where Suhail Seth puts his purse on my heart <laughs> and answer that Mrs. Gandhi's comeback in 1980 was a telling vindication of our democracy for when the people disliked her, they not only defeated her party, they defeated her son, they defeated her, and she was rendered absolutely in the Siberia of Indian democracy. And then when they saw the alternative and the circus that was going on in the country, they said, we'd like to have you back. Now, I can't think of a more democratic system than one which punishes you for the mistakes you've made and then forgives you because you're going to make a better prime minister. Okay, As for Narendra Modi, may I assure Suhail Seth that if he and his boss, Ratan Tata, stop supporting Narendra Modi, we'll defeat him in the next election, and that's coming in in a few months. Okay. No, I take... No, one This is, again, typical, typical money. One of his uh, colleagues li- looks at Facebook pages to determine facts. This man quotes out of context. Every party and every industrialist has commented on Narendra Modi's form of transformational governance qua industry. I'm making a larger point, money, on which I want your response. Do you believe it is essential to welcome murderers as form of Democrats only because you have jails to send them to? Would you I, much rather not have a system where they don't come into politics in the first place? I don't, think the, I don't think the Indian capitalists whom you serve should be praising <laughs> these murderers. I have for the last 10 years been condemning this murderer, saying that no one should vote for him. But he is getting the support of a class, which you referred to, which is attempting to capture our democracy. They may win once, they may win twice, but we, the people of India, will defeat them the third time. He's already won thrice. Thank you to all four of you. And um, I've now got the results here of the audience vote from before the debate. And you'll be interested to know that those in favour of the motion that democracy is India's Achilles heel, that's Patrick and Suhel's side, is 117. But those against the motion is 155 on William and Mani's side. But most important of all, those who haven't yet made up their mind is 177. So there is all to play for. And now you have a chance yourselves to influence the debate, to make a very brief point, or to ask a question to draw out our speakers, and um, who would like to make points? Yes, there's a lady here. Anyone else? And um, lady there. 
And a hand right at the back, a gentleman right at the back. We'll take those three to start with. Thank you, Bridget. My name's Rani Singh, and I've just written a biography of Sonia Gandhi, um, which is due to be published quite soon. It was published last week in America. And I'm sure all of you on the panel will be pronouncing on it fairly shortly, so he'll be, we'll be speaking on a panel. We don't allow product placement here. <laughs> <laughs> so, Except by money for my books. So, so I have been looking at uh, the idea of dynasty and democracy over the last year and a half. And Sahel and Patrick, while you make a very compelling argument and you produce some irrefutable evidence, what I'd like to ask you is, please, and it's a serious question, what is the next step? How would you fix the ills given the entrenched problems in Indian society? Okay, thank you. Um, here, question here. Hi, my name is Bonnie. Um, question to the house. Uh, we've had our own uh, version of the Arab Spring, which was the Anna Hazari's uh, anti-corruption activism. Um, can you speak up, speak up, so we can all hear? Yeah, I was saying that uh, India had its own version of uh, Arab Spring, which was the anti-corruption activism by Anna Hazari. Uh, just wanted to know which side of the house would like to uh, stake ownership of uh, that event. Um, with regards to what okay. we've had the discussions today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Let's, um, let's start with you, Sahil, and go along. Uh, Charbonne, right? We didn't use the word bad. We used the word flawed. A, B, you asked whether, you know, the ills could be corrected. In Achilles' times, there wasn't physiotherapy available. We believe there is available some levels of physiotherapy today. And one of the points we've kept making right from the beginning, much <clears throat> to my dismay, and it's been hijacked by, by the guys across the floor, is we have never said that dispense with democracy. What we've said is that democracy in its present form as is practiced and administered does not benefit the commonest of the common, the poorest of the poor. And no democracy is worth it as just a form of governance. It must overarchingly provide development at all levels. And that's been our constant refrain. We're not proposing dictatorships, nor are we proposing benign dynasties, either womb or non-womb linked. <laughs> Very clearly. Okay, Patrick. <laughs> I, I, I find it hard to say a word against money because he quotes me so cleverly and wisely. Back to the audience. <laughs> But to try and answer a few of the questions, I mean, how do you fix democracy in the way that it's gone wrong in the last 10, 15, 20 years? I think there are three very basic things. One is the establishment of the rule of law. There are large sections of India, particularly in the north and in central India, where law, there is no rule of law. Uh, you have to have accountable representative government where every community feels that they are being spoken for in Parliament. That is clearly no longer the situation in the way that it was in the 1950s and 60s. And above all, you have to have a functioning state. And particularly in the parts of East India, which are now controlled by Maoist guerrillas, the state is not functioning at all. You asked the question of surely India gets the leaders it deserves. 
I don't believe that argument at all, because otherwise you can go back, for example, to the Pakistani model of basic democracy, of saying whoever we offer you is, re- is, is your representative who you can vote for or against. The, re- the reality is that because certain parties, and in particular the Congress Party, has almost no internal democracy, you are given a very narrow choice of candidates. Do you want to vote for uh, a criminal, or do you want to vote for somebody who's corrupt, or do you want to vote for somebody who's come out of the right womb? I mean, that is the option in front of a lot of Indian voters today. And that, that's what has to, be, has to be changed. I mean, essentially, what Manny and William are trying to promote is the idea of entrenched privilege, because that is a situation... Today, the vast majority of Indians are excluded from democracy. Unless you are middle class or wealthy, unless you are part of these charmed circles in each state, you have absolutely no chance whatsoever of making it into parliament. Now, if I was in Mani's shoes and I'd lost an election and then been booted upstairs to the Rajya Sabha like the House of Lords, of course I'd want the present system to stay. But we're arguing for some kind of transformation. Thank you. William. There was an interesting question about Anna Hazari, and I think it's a, it, it's, it's a very difficult one, and I haven't made up my own mind uh, on Anna Hazari at all. On one hand, a very important example of the self-correcting nature of the Indian polity. Here you have mass demonstrations against corruption, following the, the pocketing of huge amounts of money during the Commonwealth Games, uh, during the the telecom scandal, the 3G scandal, vast sums taken by politicians. Huge public anger, especially from the middle class. All to the good. On the other hand, Anahazari is not a Democrat. He has, is self-appointed in his village. He flogs anyone who drinks against the law. Um, and, uh, uh, and he has turned mocking elected politicians and putting a quango over-elected politicians into the central plank of his, uh, of his movement. So I think it's, a, it, it's a, while an anti-corruption movement is a very fine thing, I think being on this side of the house the supporters of democracy, uh, I think there are worrying aspects and I think uh, he should not be putting himself above elected leaders, however flawed they are. Thank you. I'm going to ask the other two to... Um hold their thoughts for their final summing up because we've only got 10 minutes left and uh, the time has come for you all to have a chance to vote again on the motion this evening. I must say I don't envy you because uh, we've heard there's been some consensus on both sides. Everyone seems to agree democracy is flawed, that it's eccentric, that it's argumentative, that there's no alternative to democracy. But that's not the question this evening. The question is, is democracy India's Achilles heel? And the ushers are coming round with ballot boxes. Remember, you tear your ticket in half, and if you agree with the motion, you put the four in, and if you disagree, you put the against in, and if you don't know, put in the whole thing. And in the meantime, let's hear from the speakers one more time, just two minutes each, please, making their main points, starting with Mani. Mani, you have the floor for two minutes. Democracy is not a solution. Democracy is a framework for a solution. Therefore, as any society has flaws, so also would any democracy have its flaws. But the possibility of correcting these flaws without throwing the baby out with the bathwater is far greater in a democracy 
than in any other form of government. I think we need to discuss the issue before us today, which is whether democracy is the Achilles heel, in other words, the weakest point of the existence of India, or the strongest point of the existence of India. And I believe that we would not be able to exist as a nation if we didn't have democracy. For after all, how would you define an Indian? An Indian is one who is not understood by most Indians when he speaks. An Indian is one who doesn't understand what most other Indians have to say. An Indian is one who wouldn't be said, seen dead wearing the clothes of another Indian. An Indian is one who finds most of the food of other Indians indigestible. An Indian is one who doesn't dance the same dances as others and doesn't sing the same songs as others. And the chances are that an Indian is one whose religion is not the same as that of another. Certainly an Indian is one whose color is not the same as another Indian and whose race is not the same as another Indian. Now, in this amazing diversity, how do you succeed in being Indian? What is an Indian? Well, my provisional answer is an Indian is one who accepts that anyone who calls himself an Indian is an Indian. Now, this kind of a society can only be sustained by a democracy in which, in addition to all the other diversities, we also have diversity of political opinion. I hate, I just totally hate, to put the fate of my country into the hands of Suhail Seth. But in case the people of India make this grave mistake, and he has the guts to stand in an election, then we will find out where we'll have to accept it. And it'll still give me the opportunity of defeating him next time. And I don't get that opportunity in China. And Chinese economic development was beautifully described to me by Huang Ping of the Academy of Social Sciences, who said that progress in China means first they make you landless in order to give you a job, then they make you unemployed, so if you're without a job, you then become homeless. And when you're homeless, you have to leave the place where you're working and staying and look for somewhere else to go, so you become hopeless. So he says what we call it is that you move us from being first landless into being homeless and from homeless into being hopeless. Now, I don't think that's a very happy system. And the cauldron is boiling inside China. There's a Chinese student at the Jawaharlal Nehru University who was asked, what do you find is the difference between Chinese students and Indian students? And his astonishing reply was that I don't understand why Indian students like Chinese students are not out on the streets. There are thousands of demonstrations taking place every day in China. And it's the kettles, the lid of the kettle is on, and therefore the steam is building up. Whereas in India, even if we do have a million mutinies taking place, there's a full opportunity all the time to try and get an answer out. And that is why, despite the fact that uh, there is a lot of trouble and a lot of discontent in India, as Harry Dahl said, we still do not think that the answer to our problems lies in picking up the gun and shooting everybody around. We believe that the answer lies in the ballot and not the bullet. Thank you. Patrick French, two minutes from you. Thank you. I'd like to close by quoting a few lines back from the Constituent Assembly. This is a couple of months before India became a republic, 
and the architect of the Indian Constitution, Dr. Bhimrao Ambedkar, is speaking. He is one of the great and sometimes forgotten heroes of the Indian freedom movement. He was somebody who came from the background of being a maha, somebody who would at that time have been considered untouchable. When he was in class, he had to sit or squat separately from the other children, but he ended up drafting this document or overseeing the drafting of this document. And he made two points, which I think are very pertinent, both in the light of the Arab Spring and what is happening in parts of West Asia, and in light of the street protests and the Anahazari movement in India. He said that once you've got a constitution of the kind India now has, we must abandon the bloody methods of revolution. Where constitutional methods are open, there can be no justification for it. These methods are nothing but the grammar of anarchy, and the sooner they are abandoned, the better for us. Now, it seems to me that the non-functioning of democracy is directly responsible both for the Anahazari movement and for wider, much, much more substantial uh, problems such as the uh, Adivasi protests, the problems in Kashmir, the places where people feel they really have no alternative but to go out on the streets because democracy does not speak for them. And the other point that he made in that classic great speech was that in India, bhakti, or what we maybe call the path of devotion or hero worship, plays a part in its politics, unequaled in magnitude by the part it plays in the politics in any other country in the world. But in politics, bhakti or hero worship is a sure road to degradation and to eventual dictatorship. Well, what you have today is the virtual dictatorship of a handful of privileged people who pass on power in Parliament to their children. What we need to do is to go back to the vision of the Founding Fathers, Dr. Ambedkar, Pandit Nehru, the people I was quoting earlier. That is true Indian democracy of the kind that was seen in the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s until Indira Gandhi decided to declare a temporary dictatorship. Thank you. Thank you. William Dorenpole. If you have a Rolls Royce, or indeed a fine new tractor, that is working perfectly, and a thug comes along in the middle of the night and removes the wheels, it doesn't mean that the tractor or the Rolls Royce is flawed. It means that it's been abused. I think we need a little clarity in the thought here. The fact that democracy as practiced is deeply flawed in India doesn't mean that democracy itself is still not India's greatest strength. The democracy of India is a work in process, a work in progress. But the system is right. It is, as my friend Patrick so rightly put it, a self-correcting system. Uh, and uh, it can be corrected in successive elections. The system is right. It is India's greatest strength. It is not the Achilles heel. Uh, all that needs to be done is for it to be reformed. But the system itself is fully functioning and entirely capable of reforming itself. Thank you, William. <laughs> OK, Suhel, you have the final word. So after some fiction, let's return to reality. <laughs> William Dalrymple says the system exists. It doesn't matter if in the present form it is flawed. Thank you. This is exactly what I started the debate with. That in its present form... India's system of democracy as practiced today is its Achilles heel. There may be other organs that are functioning, but there is a certain vulnerability which democracy brings to the party. And that's exactly our contention. 
I'm a great believer that democracy by itself is just an absolute concept. Both these gentlemen are happily married, so they now in, intend to romance the motion rather than anyone else. We're not talking about romantic notions of democracy here. We're talking about the real benefits that democracy brings to the table. Does it provide equality for all in India? No. Does it allow people who preside over programs to continue in power? Yes. Does it allow for dictators to return to virtuous Democrats? Yes. Is there a flaw? Yes. Can that be corrected? Our solution. And we were the only side that gave solutions. We said you need electoral reforms. You need the strengthening of accountability. And most importantly, as Patrick rightly said, you need to go back to the, the vision that the founding fathers of India had. It's very easy for us to sit at the Royal Geographical Society and partake in this debate and say, oh, but you know, it's an interesting concept. We're all liberals. Ask the man who can't file a first information report when his wife is raped and murdered. Ask the person in a village who cannot access a, a school, a primary school or a health clinic for 37 miles. Ask those people if they care about democracy or do they care about the benefits. When you and I go out and buy a brand, we don't buy brands, we buy benefits. The benefits of democracy have not touched every Indian. The concept has. Our contention is, like Manishankar Raya used the, again, college debating example from, you know, homelessness to hopelessness. Our contention is equality, opportunities, and aspirations need to be met. And they can only be met if we are courageous enough to believe that today, democracy is India's Achilles heel. Tomorrow, it may not be. And that's what we all hope for. Thank you so much. Okay, so now here comes the moment we've all been waiting for to find out whether the vote has swung one way or another. Let me remind you of what the vote was before the debate. Those in favour of the motion that democracy is India's Achilles heel was 117. And those against, 155. With 177 of you, that boggy place in the middle who hadn't quite decided. Well, the don't knows are now 19. So the debaters have certainly done their work in swinging people over to one side or the other. And those in favour of the motion, who, are, um, who think that democracy is India's Achilles heel, who join Patrick and Suhel with that thought... 159. 159. So quite a boost. But those who are against the motion, who are with William and Mani on this, 266. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.